Listener Production. Shares, Market. the S&P, the ISX stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday Mailbag Edition. Even more specialer than normal. Yes, specialer is now a word. Even more special than normal because Andrew has managed somehow to escape the hell of tenancy in, uh, well, Australia right now. He's managed to find himself a spot, a space and some time, hopefully free of sanders and generators and all sorts of fun stuff, to spend a little bit of time, maybe an hour or so with me and, of course, with every single one of our very, very valuable listeners. I'd normally ask how you are, mate, but uh, I don't even know what to ask. What's going on at your place? Surviving. I'm pretty sure you shouldn't be able to hear it in the background, but there's all kinds of sanders and things happening, <laughs> oh, which God. is which is good, right? Oh, like mate. it's someone's finally after three weeks decided to to um, <laughs> deliver on their on their promise. It's just oh. that they had to rock up at the one time. They said, "Is this time suitable?" I said, "No, actually, it's not." But any other time is, and and of course they've rocked up. That's and, why they come. Yep. And so they come and, so, and I'm at the point where it's oh. like, actually, you're here. I'm not going to send yeah. you away. So. Yeah, exactly. But so we'll look, make uh, we will do our best to get through an yeah. hour of uh, also of mailbag. Uh, yeah, fingers crossed. So what happens <laughs> from here? We don't yet know. We're, we're, in the, we're in the dark as much as you are. By the time you've heard this, <laughs> we will know. But uh, it'll be too late for us by then. Mate, um, uh, we'll, I've, got, I've got a lot of mailbag questions, which is great. But I've got one burning one, mate, which is um, what, what's strawman.com? That was not a mailbag question. <laughs> don't don't try know, and fob it I off know. as a mailbag. You know. <laughs> we're, a, we're a private online investment club. Of course, I knew that, mate. I, knew you, that. I, I, I was, know you know that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to, you know, make sure you remember. It's, it's important. It's one of those, you know, when they ask you those questions, if you're still lucid. Uh, you know, <laughs> who's, who's the prime minister? What day is it? What uh, year? For, yeah. for, for, for many of our listeners, they can simply say, uh, what is strawman.com? And if they don't know, then there's definite concussion going on. <laughs> mate, uh, Let's, uh, let's get into the questions. Uh, great one from a guy. I assume it's a guy. Uh, if you could please keep my name anonymous, fine to use my nickname, Hammer. All right, Hammer, Hammer. we will do that, Hammer. Hammer says, I have $100,000 in cash. There is an expectation this cash pile will continue to grow. Hmm. I have no mortgage on my primary residence. Hmm. Question, and I'm mindful I'm not seeking advice, just opinions. <laughs> as, hmm. as you know, Hammer, we can't give personal advice. I have three options for the hundred grand. One, invest in broad-based equity-focused ETFs, i.e. S&P 500, ASX 200, etc. Option two, contribute the $100,000 in after-tax contributions to super. Or three, put the funds in an offset account against negatively geared property. Happy to hear the pros and cons of the above options or any other ideas. Finally, great podcast, guys. Thoroughly enjoy listening to it. Regards, Hammer. I like hammer. Hammer. hammer, hammer. No, it's not quite Ram. It's not quite Andrew Ram Page, but hammer, hammer's, hammer's pretty good. Were you, <laughs> a, were you a wrestling hammer, fan when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. No, yeah. no I wasn't. Got, no. You were MC Hammer, mate. I've gone further back to Greg the Hammer Valentine, one of the great villains of the old WWF wrestling. Okay. <laughs> uh, one, of the, one of the great entertainment sports of the, of the 20th century. Um, so, yes, did, he's probably neither of those two men. <laughs> but uh, but let, let's try and help Hammer out. I, I'm going to ask you, mate, not to choose one. I'm yep. going to ask you, as he says, happy to hear the pros and cons of the option. So let's let's try that. What are the pros and cons of putting 100 grand into a broad-based equity-focused ETF? Yeah, it should be pretty easy. Um, so uh, in the first uh, option of just putting it into a broad-based equities ETF, uh, you know it's going to be volatile. Who knows what's going to happen with that hundred grand over the next year or two? But there's probably a reasonable expectation it'll do okay over the longer term. You don't get the tax advantages of of what you would do in super. Oh, hang on, no, 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 we're, no, we're not. We're not comparing. We're just doing pros and cons. Oh, okay, okay. Well, the the advantage is back to that. <laughs> the advantage is is that at any point you can liquidate and go and buy a jet ski or whatever it is that Australians do with their spare cash. <laughs> Buy a jet ski. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, So, so that's that's a really nice option. Um, what are the what are the cons of investing in a broad based ETF, mate? Well, you get the volatility. You, yeah. you get the, anything could happen in the next year or two. So you always mm-hmm. you always it's it's not it's not us covering. It's just being honest here. You know, as much as covering as we like to say on our but, but, PG bottom, rated podcast. Bottom covering. Bottom covering. It, thank you. Yes. It, yes. Is, is uh, <laughs> you can be right 
over a five, 10 year period, but looks spectacularly yep. wrong in the next <laughs> year or two. So when you say, oh, this is a really good option. I mean, I've, I'm, I've done it with friends. I got a call the other day from a friend asking something. He said, oh, last time you talked about broad-based ETFs, I'm down 30% since then. I'm like, yeah. well, I also said that this, anything <laughs> can happen. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just mindful of that. Expectations really, really, really matter. And, and yeah, totally. it's, it's easy to sort of say, oh, that's cool. I don't actually mind that. Mm. And we all like to sort of pride ourselves on that, on that stoicism. Yeah. The, the, the truth is, is that for all of us, I don't care who you are, when, when you see the value, the, the quoted value of your assets drop significantly, and they can really go down 40%. Uh, you know, it's, it's a different story. And I mean, what does Charlie Munger say? If you don't have the, the constitution to weather a 50% drawdown at least three or four times in your investing career, you don't deserve to be an equity investor. So Charlie's putting it in his, his normal, very blunt kind of terms, but he's got a point, right? It's, it's, that's, mm. that's the price you pay for higher on average long-term returns. It's, it's, yeah. it's the price of admission. So that's the, that's the downside. The other downside to blur it into the next one is that you don't get the wonderful tax advantages. <laughs> oh, come on. No, 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 no. I'm not going to show you that. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna add a downside, mate. The, the pros are obvious, I think. The long-term returns have been spectacular, and I see no reason they'll be different. They could be different in absolute magnitude, but probably close. Uh, the downside for me, the other con is just related to yours, which is uh, while the market can be volatile itself, uh, we think we think that'll be improved over time. But the one additional one for me is just... As an investor, you need to be able to control your emotions at those times because the absolute con could be, to your mate's example, I've lost 30% mm. that I sold everything because I, I thought you were stupid and I didn't do it anymore. So now my 100 grand is only worth 70, but at least I've got 70 grand in cash. So, yeah. so the, the kind of the extended con from that is just you've got to be able to stick with it. You, you know, mm. It's one thing to say, you've got, you know, not, we're not, we're not even saying you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to suck, it's going to hurt, you're going to feel bad. That's, that's, that's a con to one degree. The, the, the extended version of that is if you then sell because you don't want the pain anymore, yeah. that, can get, that can get really bad. Yeah, yeah. That point of hey, capitulation yep. is real, yes, by the way. Exactly. It's, All right. Yeah. Now you can go and you go on, come and go to your tax thing. Now you want to, <laughs> you've tried to do this twice. I'll, I'll finally let you loose on the super. What are the pros and cons of putting hundred grand into the super, mate? Well, I'll, I'll extend what you were just saying there. The the advantage is that you don't have the option of taking the money. Yeah, that's true. Actually, so yeah. that is an advantage. It kind yeah, of really it's, yeah. it can save you from yourself. And yep. as I said, that the, the tax advantages. So. Um, if I was, if I was, it depends how close you are to retirement as well. If mm. retirement's only a few years away, it's a no-brainer, right? Because a, you're only should only be investing in equities with a multi-year time frame anyway, mm. Mm. and and you get all the tax advantages. If you're 22, then you know it's a lot further away, and it's it's not as clear a proposition. So there's there's that as well. What what would you add? No, I think that's right. I think I think locking it away is both a pro and a con. The tax advantages are an absolute pro. Um, I think that's about it. I mean, there are some limits to then what you can do with the money, not in terms of pulling it out, but just generally moving it around. So, um, you, you know, there's limited, limited investment options, not not many actually, particularly with self-managed super, but you've got that that implication. Um, I suppose it's also yep. possible that if you don't, if you choose a bad fund or a bad option within the fund, mm -hmm. uh, it's also possible that your returns can be both better and worse than they might be if you did it yourself. So if you were to put it in super, they put it in, in a cash-only option, for example, versus investing in shares in the ETF, then you know the, the range of outcomes in terms of returns is actually more variable than you'd imagine. It's not, not it, it, they can be mitigated against by simply choosing well, but the choice itself and having to choose an investment strategy is in itself um, a, a, a risk, a con, um, just, it just adds an extra level of no, it's not difficult in itself but think about it we sort of think super is one thing it's not really there's a default option and there's everything from high growth through to conservative through to cash through to individual investments um, there, there can be depending on what you choose uh, a range of outcomes there as well and that again is both a pro and a con yep and what about putting the funds into an offset against a negatively geared investment property mate well, the big advantage is that it might even swing you into, dare I say it, shock horror, uh, positively geared. Um, that sounds I, terrible. That's a dirty <laughs> word, I know, but it's like, I don't know, call me old fashioned, but I think that's got it. it another way to look at it is it's a guaranteed return, right? You're, you're, you're saving the interest that you would otherwise pay. Even if you want to net that off against tax savings, it's, it's a guaranteed form of return. The other advantage, of course, is it just de-risks you to a great degree as well. So you've just you've got more buffer there uh, against your loan. You know, if if things were to sort of to get worse, 
So that's, that's something to think about. Um, the disadvantage, of course, is that maybe property continues to double every seven years and you get to collect all these wonderful mm. uh, uh, tax deductions and, and on it goes. And, and within, yeah. within that yeah. vehicle, it just so happens that investment properties turn out to be a much better investment um, and you save all this, these, you get all these deductions along the way. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, I, I would just add to that. It, it, it as much as I gave you a hard time talking about super with the uh, ETF question. There's uh, the, the the difference is an opportunity cost, I suppose, at one level. So uh, the and both ways. Um, if you are able to claim a tax deduction on the debt you have, and then invest this at a superior return elsewhere, that the two combined can be better than one or the other. So, you know, if you were to have a, uh, let's pick two numbers, right? Let's say you've got a half a million dollar investment property debt and you're claiming a deduction on the interest on that. You spend, you put the $100,000 over here somewhere else and you get growth there, which is independent of, of, the, of the interest saving. It's a bit like a, um, a principal place of residence when you say, well, do I pay off the mortgage or invest? The answer comes down to the, the incremental cash flow difference between the two. And yep. so there's probably, in this case, you'd, you'd be saving some interest but you'd also be foregoing some tax deductions. What would that look like if you invested it elsewhere at whatever rate of return you thought you could get? Comparing those two outcomes will give you the net pros and cons. Uh, I am there's very very few, and this is this is this relatives and absolutes, mate. So I guess the other thing I'd say is uh, it, this. We're so used to taking risks, right? We've just spent two weeks worth of podcast talking about the risks that people did or didn't know they were taking with SVB and Credit Suisse. Yeah. And when I say, hey, paying down some debt is always good because it just means that overall you are simply less, your, your finances are less risky than they would otherwise be. People say, yeah, but how I want to maximize my returns. I'm happy to take some risk. And I think we're all happy to take, quotes, some risk when things are good <laughs> when things are bad we realise that maybe we weren't happy to take that risk or the risk was bigger than we thought and I don't know the circumstances for Hammers investment property we couldn't give you uh, personal advice even if we did uh, but part of me is like if you've you got a lump sum you can pay down some debt uh, you know I mean, might you regret it if you could have got a better return somewhere else yeah uh, overall I, I, you know if we all did that would, would we be better off I think objectively yes so um, I think it's worth probably making that point as well. Yeah, that's that's why I say it's a guaranteed return. You yeah. you can you can make your calculus around the return, what the return might be, and how, as you say, how that contrasts elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. But it's guaranteed. It's just guaranteed. And and sometimes you know, it's I, I will. I'll speak for myself. I am, mm. I'm sure I could make a lot more money, at least in theory, if mm. all I was to do was to speculate in cryptocurrencies, right? Like I mm. I, I could probably do that. But I might not as well, so, <laughs> and probably won't. So, so you want to? I I will forgo the potential for higher returns for the benefit of added safety. Now, where you draw that, like, because as you say, you can be too safe, right? You just go buy a bunch of you know, get a bunch of hundred dollar notes mm, and bury it mm. in your backyard. That's reasonably safe outside of inflation, yeah. but it's probably the worst return you could you could imagine. Mm, um, mm. So that, that's the trade off, and 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 mm. that's the that's the lens you've got to look through. So I think as what you've said, and certainly where I'd sit, um, without knowing the specifics, I would be very tempted to put it in the offset. Yeah, I. Uh... I, th <laughs> I think so too. I, I'm mindful that uh, the returns may be better elsewhere, frankly, particularly, and, and honestly, mate, given what you said before, and actually what I think about property, if I had a hundred grand and I wanted to bet it on uh, the, the, you know, paying off the, the principal of a, a property that may not appreciate as much as some people might like to think it would versus mm. shares, I think the return mm -hmm. in shares is probably better. So if I, could, if I could get a better return in shares than property and maintain my tax deduction the property I've already got, I'm not sure what I would do. Uh, but yeah. if I was even even close, even even within spitting distance of of you know the line in terms of how much money have I got, can my income cover the debt, all that kind of stuff, just paying down the debt, it's just you know you're never going to regret being debt free uh, yeah. eventually, right? And Agreed. honestly, those people who do, I reckon, <laughs> it's a bit of tough love. Have a good hard look at yourself. Um, you, you know, the 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 eighty fourth million dollar you're trying to to generate by taking on more risk and more debt uh, at some point. You know, it's just not worth it. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't feel like that when things are good. It wants to, you know, um, what's the right word? We say engineer their finances and, you know, really get the best out of every dollar and all that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, it's like the, the bloke who wants to get the best out of his car and then blows it up because he runs it too hard rather than just backing off a little bit and getting there in a good enough time, right? This is just something to, something to get in there safely and get in there, get in there. In, in, in comfort with less stress and making sure you know that you know you're going to get there. So well, yeah, and, might and, take it at some point. And just to take an extreme example to really flog the dead horse. I mean, you read stories from time to time in the, in mm. the news where someone has 
put all their money into a property, it's gone up, they've got extra equity, mm. they've gone to the bank, they've used that equity to finance another property, they've all gone up, you get more equity and you keep rolling it in. So at a particular point in time, especially how things have sort of gone over the sort of last 10 to 15 years, on paper, the wealth is growing at an mm. incredible rate, right? But, but you're never, just by nature of the strategy, you're never um, deleveraging you know, yeah, even, right. even on a relative basis. Yep, and what yep, that yep. means is, and while it can be and has been a really great strategy, honestly, if I could go back in time, that's the strategy yeah, that's I would right. do, exactly. right? Because it, just, yep, it yep. turns out that when you're highly geared, increasing mm. prices are a wonderful thing. But of course, it, it could, you know, 10 years of incredible on-paper wealth creation can literally vanish mm. overnight. And it's a little bit of a game of chicken. Again, it's not saying, oh, yeah, that's because you're really negative on the share, uh, the property market, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. It's not. Mm. It's, you put that aside. It's just all it is is a recognition that it could happen. Whereas someone who's been more conservative and on paper doesn't have the same number of properties, but right, kept exactly. their gearing pretty, like that, they can't, well, the, the, the potential for that risk is so substantially lessened. And the cost of that, again, is, is lower returns, but it, it, it may well be if you roll things forward another five or 10 years that it was absolutely the right. far better strategy because when it, I've said this before, when it comes to investing, the first rule is survive. Because mm-hmm. if, you, if you don't survive, well, then it's all over. It doesn't really matter what yep. strategy you have if you've lost everything. You know? So it's, yep. it's sort of survive first and then, and then optimize after. So it's, it's I, yeah, again, full circle, each to their own. I, I'd be tempted to, to take the guaranteed return of the offset. Mate, here's one from Alex who says, Hi, Scott and Ram. I first heard Scott talk about compounding on the Property Couch podcast and since then have not missed an episode of the Motley Fool Money Pod. I enjoy the rants and I've learned a lot from you guys. However, I am somewhat surprised Andrew still talks to you, Scott, after appearing on a property investment-based podcast. (laughs) He's just a very good man, Alex, is all I'm saying. He's a nice bloke. He's very forgiving. Uh, Alex says, my wife and I are in our early... Why haven't, why haven't I been invited for the property couch? That's, that's the bigger question. Oh, I think we all know the answer. I've, I've, got, I've, got, I've got some views I'm happy to share. <laughs> do, you, do you reckon they really want to blow up their listenership? No, they don't. No. no, they don't. All right. My wife and I, says Alex, are in our early to mid-30s and starting our journey to build a modest property portfolio. Surely by now I've lost at least 50% of the recipients of this email. <laughs> I think that's you again. Despite this, and largely because of listening to you two, I'm also trying to learn more about the other side of investing and have started putting small amounts into some ETFs and some individual companies when we can. So fast as Alex, I suck at picking individual companies, but I'll continue to learn and probably hit you up again in the future with more questions. Excellent, please do. We are by no means well off, rather average really, but are working hard and sacrificing a lot with great detail and forward-looking plan for a comfortable retirement and for the kids to have a bit of stuff when we kick the bucket. Nice one. Speaking of retirement and being very new to actually paying attention to investing and the like, I'm still a bit bamboozled by my super. I've started looking into it a lot and it seems like it's invested in three places. 25% in a low-cost index fund that I think is basically tracking the Vanguard Global ETF. Another 20, low-cost 25% that is the Vanguard VAS, which is the ASX 300. And then a total of 50% into another fund that is managed, expensive in fees, and much poorer performing than the other two. I surprise, wasn't surprise. overly impressed when I saw this. This is Alex. I have the option of managing it and switching. So I think I should bail out of the 50% fund, chuck it into, all the, into the other two and let them do their thing. This sounds reasonable, don't you think? I'm not at the SMSF stage or anything like that. My main question is actually about regular automatic rebalancing in the future, as there are options around that. I feel if I do a 50-50 or 60-40 direct split of my regular contributions, is there really a need for regular rebalancing on just the two funds? Mm. Wouldn't that only benefit the lesser performing of the two by rebalancing and adding more to that lower performing fund and restricting the addition to the higher performer respectively as or if the gap became bigger? Should I prefer to have the contributions themselves split as I want them to be? Then the two funds go on their merry way independent of each other. I figure there are fees each time it rebalances too, so it doesn't strike me as the best way to go. But I'd love your thoughts. General advice only, of course, is Alex, thank you. But of course, I think this would relate to others, particularly newbies like myself. Hmm. That's a really good question. So look, uh, yeah. Alex, I, I would suggest that I can't tell you what to do. I would suggest that uh, unless your managed fund is likely to beat and continue beating the market, uh, generally speaking, better off index funds. I, I, I don't have any managed funds. Doesn't mean they can't do well, uh, but if it's underperforming and there's no real likelihood in your view of it changing, getting the market return is a very, very, very good thing to do. So I'm going to say start there. I think you're already in that place anyway. I can't tell you what to do again, but what I would do or what I would suggest in general. 
What about the rebalancing thing, though, mate? This is the crux of Alex's question. Do you rebalance the funds? Do you rebalance the contributions? Do you just split it 50-50 or 60-40 and just let it grow by itself? What, what, how do you approach that? I think rebalancing makes more sense when you're managing individual securities. Mm. Um, uh, you, you, you can have situations where one goes particularly bad, one goes really, really well, and you end up, you know, without design, but 90% in one and, and 10% in the other. So you don't, you sort of lose at that point in time any, any sort of diversification benefit. Right. Um, so even if it turns out that you're still far more confident, you, I mean, well, you can also like rebalance into other things. It doesn't have to be that you, you what they say, you know, water the weeds and trim the flowers and keep adding money to a, mm -hmm. to a failing investment. And that's probably more apparent at an individual company level, like the company's either executing or it's not. When it comes to ETFs, it's a little bit different because you're kind of rebalancing themselves uh, just in how they're designed. They just track an index. The index gets rebalanced mm. uh, partly by what's included and what's ex excluded and just as they sort of reweight themselves through their, their ups and downs uh, underneath that. So there's that. And there's also you've got to ask what's the correlation between those different ETFs. When you have a Vanguard Global World ETF and an Aussie uh, ETF, both focus on equities, uh, absolutely, well, guaranteed, one will do better than the other, but they'll probably be reasonably comp uh, correlated. There's not, there's not too many periods I can think of where the world market has gone terrible, but Australia has gone really, really well, or vice versa. Um, so I think when it comes to ETFs, I, I'm always, I think, very partial to the keep it simple principle. Um, not that it's necessarily the best in theory, but it just... I, I think relative to the bang you, for buck you get with, with other more complicated strategies uh, and all the effort and stress and risk and stuff involved, just I, I, would, I would basically just say whatever I'm going to commit 50-50, mm. just keep adding it to those two, knowing, knowing that those ETFs will, will probably um, will, will definitely be reweighting themselves over time and that they'll mm. probably broadly be in line. It just gives me a bit of global exposure, a bit of local exposure and... Yeah, it's it's. Is that guaranteed to be the best approach? No, but mm. is it guaranteed to be a, a, a sensible approach? I think right, so. right. Yeah, I think that's right too. Uh, I I I tend to agree, mate. I've um I said before I've got some ETFs to my young bloke. I don't intend to rebalance those anytime soon, um, I, if ever. I, the, the honest reality is the I think you the diversification diversification you get with these global versus Australian ETFs are basically just they're just almost kind of a, a backstop over mm. time uh, developed markets in particular tend to run pretty much in lockstep over the super long periods of time I think Australia was the best performing over 120 years but it was like it was a, a you know, fraction of a it was a decimal place or a decimal sorry a, um, what was it yeah like 0 0.1 0 0.2 0.3% difference between the, the whole lot it was really really small so um, I I I wouldn't say don't diversify. I think it's important, but I certainly wouldn't worry about it. Sometimes one will outperform, sometimes the other will outperform. Uh, because here's the thing, once you start to start, ETFs are about letting the market do its thing. Once you start playing, you start saying, I think I know better than the market. I think I know better than the ETF. And then that kind of turtles all the way down at that point. So I, I think mm. do what you do. Uh, I, I would I would personally just pick a, pick a, a, a percentage and just generally go with that. Yeah, hey, you're, um, so, you're so incredibly diversified to start with. So Right, exactly. I will say though, Alex does have a second question. Mm -hmm. He says, secondly and more importantly, what is straw man? Oh, I think Alex I think Alex is, is Don't encourage right. him, Alex. Didn't we didn't we already <laughs> cover this ground? I'm I, I am I am but a Repeatedly. humble servant. I am but a humble servant of our wonderful listeners. If Alex wants to know who am I to stand in his way? Well go to the go to the URL, strawman.com and, and check it out for yourself. That's that's what I would say. Is that a cop out? Help you people here, mate. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know what it is? It's, it's, a, it's a very sneaky way of getting people to go to your website. Don't you even realize <laughs> See what that I did? Way. See what I did? There? <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. One from Stephen who says, Dear Scott and Mr. Page. Mm. I'm, I'm almost offended by that, Steve. How am I? I'm Scott and he's Mr. Page. How does that work? <laughs> the more senior anyway. of the two. <laughs> I love the pod, he says, and your sensible approach to investing. I have a question or maybe it's a comment. I'm not sure which. I regularly hear people from other companies give investment advice on other podcasts. They seem so bright and considered, so I thought I'd look up their investment performance. It turns out the returns are woeful, far worse than the index. He then says, here's a screenshot of the fund's share price and brackets. For listeners, it is top left to bottom right. Hmm. What do you think are the lessons here for investors? Regards, Stephen. Oh, I love that. What do you that. reckon, mate? I, I will... I will 
stand up for some of them too. Context matters right. here. I, I think you will find, and this is true, I've made this point before, of the world's greatest investors, people with just eye-watering multi-decade returns, all of them without exception have suffered through long and enduring periods of underperformance. It's kind of par for the course. So if you want to look over the last uh, six or 12 months, and I'm not saying that's, that's mm. what has been said here, but you know, just as an yep, extreme yep. example, I don't put too much weight in that. You know, so I, I think I think we have to be a little bit f- forgiving uh, of that. That that being <laughs> that being said, um, mm. I, I, the studies that have been done, and there have been numerous studies, is that we do tend to see the industry professionals underperform the benchmarks over on average. So not yep. that all do, plenty outperform, right, right, but, right. but most don't. And even if they outperform on a gross basis, it's it's the extraction of the fees. You talked about compounding before. They're not big fees in percentage terms necessarily in any one given year, but yep. they too they too compound out and can just really make uh, a little bit uh, of difference mm. there. So de- definitely, when you are looking at performance, also always make sure you look at performance after fees. So yeah. it is it is a consideration. The more cynical take on it as well is that <laughs> you've, you've got to ask yourself what, uh, and this is true of any industry, what is someone selling? At face level, it's just like, well, you're selling investment services. Mm. Um, but, it's, but, but there are a million of them out there. So really what you're doing is you're sort of marketing yourself on narrative and sounding mm-hmm. smart and doing things. So it doesn't, here's the irony, the better performing funds, now I'm not saying performance from a shareholder's or an investor's perspective, the better performing funds from their own internal business, <laughs> not necessarily the ones that, that do that well, but the ones that market themselves extremely well. A good example, contemporary one, would probably be ARK Invest with Kathy Wood. I mean, he's mm-hmm. had a woeful <laughs> recent, recent performance, but what a story, what a narrative. So, yep. so... Um, you do. I, I think. I think you've. I think it. You don't want to be cynical, but you want to be have a healthy degree of skepticism. Whenever someone is talking, us in, us especially, on a podcast, on a TV show, or whatever it kind of is, and, and sort of giving advice, um, yeah, you have to bear and te- tease apart what sounds good and what is actually good and what is mm-hmm. actually supported by a long long term sort of. Uh, track record and the other thing is also bear in mind that we all do it it's not it's not a a, an evil plan per se but Mm. unconsciously we will always talk our book i talk my own book all the time because god don't you yeah, <laughs> and it's kind of like, well, I'll, I'll kind of rationalize it to myself because if you ask me, what do I like? Well, I'm going to yeah, talk about the things that I like and Absolutely. the things that I like are the things that I hold. So I'm talk- but, but, but in doing that, I'm hyper aware. You're always talking rightly mm. about behavioral biases and the rest of it. And mm. a big one is called the endowment effect, which is you just treat things that you own is inherently more valuable than things that you don't. Yes. And, and that's, that is always going to be true. So I listen to a lot of talking heads and pundits and stuff. And, and I think it's a great way to sort of open yourself to new perspectives and to get new ideas that you might not have otherwise come across. But I really think at that point, that's that's the function that is served, unless you're going to go all in and just invest in their fund directly. I think mm-hmm. that from the outside, what, what do you do with that is you go, thank you, that's interesting idea or not, I'll take it from here. And then it's on you. It really is. Like, it's very easy to say, oh, Jim Cramer told me to buy SVB a week before, <laughs> which, which he did, by the way, or something like that, a, a month before. Um, there's, there's an inverse Cramer ETF, which is kind of funny. Um, so Jim Cramer, for those that don't know, is a, a US sort of talking head on, on share markets. He's got a pretty bad track record. <laughs> Good case in point, I suppose. Um, anyway, I, 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 I digress. So, so yeah, healthy skepticism is a good idea yep i agree um what do i think i don't really i can't really have much to that mate i think um do i think the key one for me is that track record matters but also long-term track record matters and i think it's so easy to be caught up with not only the endowment effect you talked about mate but but recency bias so yeah something that's done really well in the last six months everyone's all over right there's there's a reason hot money is hot money Every single fad happens because it gets its own momentum and everyone jumps on because they all want to be part of the next thing or the last thing. And then as soon as it goes away, everyone jumps off just as quickly for the same reasons and on and on and we go. Mm. And so, so, so long-term is the only time frame that matters when it comes to investing, but when it comes to analyzing performance as well. Uh, Buffett you know, had, had two or three horrible years at the end of 1990, 
eight, seven, eight, nine, because the internet boom was taking off. Um, you know, no one wanted to buy your shares. I was selling Berkshire Hathaway shares, so pushed the share price down. They went and bought Pets.com and everything else, and you know, it's all it's all that kind of combination. Mm. So make sure it's a long term track record. Um, Barron's, my one of my favourite headlines. Barron's, uh, the the US business publication, ran an article at the end of 1999 entitled "What's Wrong, Warren?" Because uh, Buffett had missed the missed the tech boom, and somehow he was past it and over it, and missed everything. And of course, he was proven right as he often is. Um, but you know, that just a reminder that those things might happen over the short term. But otherwise, yeah, I think um, just 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 be mindful. I will say quickly, mate, too, on funds generally. One of the bees in my bonnet that I haven't ranted about for a while, so let me light up here. You know, I love broadly diversified, low cost index funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the ETFs that track indexes, indices. I, de- I really dislike, generally speaking, those that are thematic, have a commodity or an asset or a trend or a, a theme. And there's two reasons for that. One is because people take a shortcut. I think electric vehicles are the future, therefore I'm going to buy a, a lithium ETF. The, the gap between those two statements is a mile wide. It feels like it's obvious. A, a, a is true, therefore B must be true. Um, but the difference between EVs will probably be big to get to, and therefore I think that this ETF of these specific companies is priced appropriately and has companies in it that are good enough that will grow their profits and therefore give me a decent return over a long period of time greater than the index is really what the full sentence is. But no one says that. They just say, I like EVs, therefore I'll buy a lithium ETF because that makes, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I don't like them generally. What I, what I dislike more than that, though, is... If you're an ETF provider, I'm going to bag some ETF providers here, not by name, because that would be silly. If you're an ETF provider, so we're not allowed, you and I aren't allowed to make certain claims, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Motley Fool's a licensed financial advice company. We are really, really carefully, um, you know, our marketing is really carefully constrained. If you're an ETF provider, what you do is say, hey, look at this great new ETF I've got, and it tracks... Um, you know, one, one expo- <laughs> I'm going to say it just for fun. One exposure to Bitcoin... Buy my mm-hmm. ETF. Cryptos, you know, if you want to get on the crypto craze, buy my ETF. And and what they're really doing is they're, they're kind of, you know, it's, they see the momentum. Because don't forget, ETF providers don't get paid for being good. They get paid for having lots of money in their fund. That's literally how they earn their money. Well, that's what I said very, before, very, right? Very it's pure. about you're selling narratives, right? right? Yeah. Of course you are. So the ETF, not just, the, not just managed funds. But even the ETF providers, in theory, passive investing, right? We don't, we don't actively manage this. We just give you the opportunity. If you want to buy a Bitcoin ETF or a lithium ETF or a cybersecurity ETF or a, what else is that? They make this, you know, they, they, they kind of, they, they load the a gun. Million and they're, things, not, yeah. they're not allowed to fire it, but they load the gun and let, invite you to, to, to make those things yourself. And I, I don't know, I, not, it's, not, it's not wrong. It's not inappropriate. There's nothing, well, I think it's arguably wrong. There's nothing illegal, immoral, and ethical necessarily about it. But creating something just because there's a whole lot of people who want to buy it is uh yeah look think about th- i mean imagine that etf imagine the etf um industry in 1999 if it was around then mm. there would have been eighty four thousand dot com etfs mm. get it get it on the hot new technology buy a you know they would have lost a fortune for people yeah but and, and but they don't, they don't make any claims they, they let that's it they load the gun and let mm. you pick it up and fire it and that's i, I just be really really careful we say etfs unless android are doing differently we're always always talking about those really low-cost, broad-based, index-based ETFs. That, that's what we're talking about. Don't you know? ETFs aren't ETFs, and all the same. So just be a little bit careful. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're essentially on, on one end of the spectrum. You're just trying to bet on the whole of market. Within that market, mm-hmm. some sectors will go well, others won't. But yeah. again, history is a pretty good guide. And again, the compromise you take there is probably well, certainly lower returns than if you happen to pick the best performing sort of sector or, or area of the economy. Yep. Then you get down to the, these ones that you're talking about, and it, it feels like you're doing the same thing. It feels safe, but you are making macro, <laughs> yeah. macro and structural economic bets. And that's hard. It's a lot harder than it 100%. sounds. You yep. know, and, and I, I tend to think if you're, and there's nothing wrong with that. If, you know, I, I know an insane amount about lithium and I've got a very mm. strong view that as a whole, anyone yep. in this space is going to go, well, then you've, you've now got an instrument at your disposal that you can prosecute that. But you are taking yes. a very active kind of approach. But then I'd also challenge, challenge you to sort of say, well, if you're that deep in the weeds and you know the space uh-huh. that well, maybe you could just pick the best companies with, with 100%. within that. 100%. You know? Yep. 
And I'm not saying you're going to get it, but I mean, you could still have a broad-based portfolio of 20, 30 mm. stocks within that. So why take the ETF, which has 400 stocks, which you know, statistically, most probably at best, 20% of them are going to prove to be decent. Why not just say, oh, I'm going to take the top 10% of that 400 mm. companies. Mm. And I feel as though I've got some capability. To, I, I obviously feel I've got the capacity to, to read the structural direction of the market. So probably I've got a bit of an edge when it comes to individual stocks. So just just cut to the chase and, and just skip over it altogether. So broad-based index tracking ETFs, fine. That's all good and well. If you want to get into the weeds, go mm. to the stock level, you know, like just yeah, yeah. cut to the chase. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. All right, mate, let's move on to a question from Luke. Luke, are you, you're going to like Luke. Hi, Scott and Ramy says, Thanks for answering my question a few weeks back on evaluating management in small caps. I have another question for the pod regarding diversification. My portfolio consists of two ETFs. This is the Vanguard ASX 300 and the NASDAQ 100 ETF and 16 individual stocks. Of the 16, 15 are either tech or mining. I've previously worked in the mining industry, so I feel I have some knowledge in that area and I have a strong interest in the technology sector but I fear my portfolio may be too concentrated. I understand you can't give personal advice, but I'd love your thoughts. P.S. Andrew may also like to know, I do own some Bitcoin. Hey. Uh, <laughs> thanks for all your insight and in advice on investing. Full on from above average driver. Luke, <laughs> love it. Luke, I love the reference. To the uh, A bit of a, what the comedians call a callback to previous uh, content. Yes, uh, we're all above average drivers, aren't we? Uh, Luke, we glad sure you are too. Uh, Ram, 15 I'll, I'll grab this one first and I'll let yep. you jump in yep um, only because I normally ask you the questions Go for uh, it. I so look uh, first I guess first things first because you've got the two ETFs they are super diversified by definition now if you have if those ETFs are 2% combined of your of your portfolio and the other 15 stolen 16 stocks are 98% that's one way of looking at it if you're saying well these two ETFs are 80% of my portfolio and the other 16 stocks are 20% then you've already take you've already got massive diversification anyway so as much as you say 16 stocks in the two sectors, because you've got those ETFs, it kind of adds a wrinkle. Now, we can't give you personal advice anyway, Luke, but think about that. So the larger the ETFs are as a share of your portfolio, by definition, the less concentration, uh, I would say less it matters because it always matters, but the less impactful the concentration of your stocks are. If it's a really small ETF exposure, then the concentration matters a whole lot more. So that's the first thing. Yeah, so, so just, gets, just on that. Okay. So every single Please. one of your stocks could go to zero. Right. But if you've got 80% there, I mean, only a 20% yeah, fall overall. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> The most you could lose, exactly. So yeah. if, you, if you really screw it up, that you're not very exposed. If the 16 stocks are 98% of your portfolio, the ETF's just token, then it's a much much bigger deal. Yep. Uh, I'll, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break this up uh, for you, Luke. Uh, you say 15 are tech or mining. I, and again, I don't want to know which, uh, <laughs> how much of each because we can't give personal advice. But I think tech is the greatest misnomer in investing. Today. I agree. Well, here, here. Possi possibly, yeah. possibly value and growth being, being the other one, maybe maybe yes. picked it at the post. But yes. what, what is tech? I mean, Amazon is tech, okay. And Prometicus, Andrew's favorite company, is tech. Mm -hmm. And Catapult, another Andrew's favorite company, is tech. And Kogan, one of mine, there we go, drink, is drink. tech. <laughs> and But also, you know, Apple is tech. And uh, Cisco Systems that makes routers and switches is tech. And you got, I mean, I, I used a couple of retail companies there, so they've got a bit, you know, Amazon and Kogan, a bit, a, bit, um, a bit in common. But what have they really otherwise got in common? The answer is almost nothing. You know, one, one's a, or two of them are retail companies. One's a hardware manufacturing business. One is a sports analytics business. One is a medical imaging business. Uh, you know, they, they're all considered tech. And that's on one hand not wrong, except what's not tech? I mean, bloody Woolies, between its website, its home delivery and its automatic restocking system, and, you know, it sells groceries. But I'm not sure that Woolies is that much less tech than Amazon, frankly. I mean, yeah. you know, it's not only online, but, but realistically, like, if, you, if you're trying to draw delineations, they're pretty artificial. Yeah. So I would say, now, if, if, by the way, if, 15, if, if, if 10 of them are tech and all 10 are uh, e-commerce tech, or all 10 are computer hardware tech, or all 10 are something else, then maybe you have got too much concentration. But I would break that up. Now, I will say quickly, the market will consider them all tech. So the market's wrong. We're right. <laughs> I would say that. Mm -hmm. But you know, if tech, in air quotes, is on the nose, then all stocks might fall. So they may be correlated in the short term when it comes to share price movements. So I'm not saying I'm not saying because they are different businesses, the share prices won't move together. They probably will. If the market loves tech or hates tech, you will see them all jump or fall. 
But over the long term, in terms of what we, every investor should be long term, and in terms of the way this plays out, you should expect the, the, the fortunes of the businesses themselves to be far more important. Take, you know, two search companies, Google and, and Yahoo, right? Both tech. Mm-hmm. Yahoo, almost zero now. Uh, Google, a squillion dollars. I own some Alphabet shares. Uh, it's Google's parent company. So, you know, are they both tech? Yes. Do they both go in the same direction? Well, sometimes, yeah, during the dot-com crash they did. But then subsequently, they've gone in very, very, very different directions. So there's that. Yeah, it's a bit of an anachronism. Like, I, I remember back in the day, um, two very successful businesses, in fact, mm. for Australia, um, tech businesses, uh, yeah. realestate.com and car yeah, sales. Right. I mean, yeah, you, yeah. like, I don't even think that seems controversial to call them technology businesses, but no. they're not really. I mean, Correct. they were in the day when this early structural shift was sort of happening from print mm. classified to online, but they're a classifieds business. That's what yeah, they that's are. Right. I mean, they, right. they use the internet and yes, they've got some software and a website and all of that kind of stuff. But I think and while it was perfectly a perfectly apt description in the early days, it's no longer a decent description. So, so yeah, I, mm. I, I think yeah, you, you make the point well. I I do mm. think though. Um, see, I, I would having said all of that, I'd probably call myself a very tech oriented investor, and I'd, I'd probably square that circle a little bit by saying the companies mm. that I'm investing in are directly involved in creating new technology as opposed to mm. using technology, um, whether that be software or, or, or anything else. And so I think that's good. And I think, the, you know, the, the caller uh, or the listener, I should say, is right to focus on areas that you have an interest in and you have a bit of a, um, um, a bit of a background in. I think it's a, I think mm. it's a wonderful advantage. Um, but but again, just just don't don't adhere to these broad terms. Like if there's a technology that you really like in a particular sector, and if it helps to call it a technology sector, then by a uh, technology company, <laughs> yeah, right. by all means do it. But the the, the, right. the base, I know I know you're not doing this, but you're not investing in mm-hmm. in it because it's technology. You're investing yeah. in it because you like the company and what it's doing. And yeah, it just mm-hmm. happens that it's very technology focused. Yep, I think that's right. Now, mining-wise, I I'm, I I don't love miners. I guess I own Fortescue. I've said before, uh, Luke, so you know that. Um, uh, the only thing I would caution anyone on is just because you're working in the industry doesn't mean you're necessarily going to invest well in it. Doesn't mean you invest badly in it either, by the way. So let me be really, really clear. Um, and the only reason I say that is because there's a difference between uh, working in mining or working in any industry and being able to invest in it well. Um, you may be a medico. Does that really mean you know which breakthrough cancer drug is going to win? I would say no, because there are some really smart medicos in every biotech hopeful, and 99% of them don't ever don't ever succeed. Right? They're, they're just people not wasting their life's work uh, on something they don't think is going to work. They all think it's going to work, but yet very few of them do. Um, mining, same thing. You know, I, I would I would very kindly, very nicely. I don't mean this at any way. Uh, critically or insultingly but you know the 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 economics of the miner the investment potential of the miner um, working in mining is one thing uh, i've said many many times uh, you know even the best miner will suffer if the commodity price falls you, the, the, you know you can't do both uh, and i don't yet know anyone who can successfully um uh, well regularly permanently perfectly uh, understand the uh the cycles and forecast the cycles of prices so just be a little bit careful um there's one of those you know a little bit knowledge of dangerous type things um do does it really make you a good investor in that industry because you've worked in it sometimes yes absolutely if you if you have some knowledge that lets you work out which company which commodity what price what point in the cycle if you genuinely think you're good at that go for it um i and it's not it's not just about mining it's about any industry right I, I would just i would just caution anybody who says I, I've worked in com- in a company in industry X, therefore I should invest in industry X. Um, sometimes, by the way, if you've, if you've worked in airlines, you might be able to pick the best airline. Doesn't make them great investments. Uh, so you know, just just be a little bit careful. Just because you've worked in it, you know the industry itself, doesn't necessarily mean they're great investments. Or you're going to be particularly better than anyone else at choosing the best investments at the right time and the right price. Mm. Yeah, I don't disagree. I, I just, I guess, I would the the counterfactual is is. Um, if you know nothing about an industry, maybe not a great place to invest as well. So it's sort of not at odds with what you're saying at all. But I think I think it is an advantage to to be familiar with the workings of the industry, provided that 
there's there's a gap between what an industry at large might do and what an individual business might do and then a layer beyond that which is what the shares might do as we often talk about businesses and industries can go well but the shares might not go that well because you bought it at a point where it was just overhyped and 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 it was at an extreme valuation so yeah I, I just make that point I, I I tend to think I tend to think it, it is a if you're going to start mm. somewhere, start with the familiar, right? Yeah. But just, but oh, just, uh, yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. I think that's true. T- 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 I, just, I just want to be careful. Yeah. yeah, but don't. You're right. You're right to say it though. There's a, the, you've you've got to then go through those other steps. To you know, it's not an automatic pass to you're going to do well. Right. In that's space. all I'm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. If you if you've been an airline employee for forty years, you've lost a squillion dollars investing in airlines. Yeah. If you were a tech employee that knew a lot about tech in 1998. Uh, and you thought you could choose the best tech companies to invest in, you still get your backside handed to you because the share price will massively, massively overvalued, and, and so on and so forth. Again, I don't want to. I don't want. I'm not, I'm not trying to run Luke down or people in his position. I just wanted to add that because sometimes it's one of those you, don't, you know what you don't know. You know what you know, but you don't know what you don't know. Mm. Uh, and so I just wanted to kind of throw that into the into the conversation as well. Yep. Mate, um, let's go to a question from James, who says at the top of the. I've said this before. If you go email us. Let me know at the top if I can or can't say your name. So James has started with, you can mention my first name, exclamation mark. Before you even then, it says, hi, Scott and Ram, which I appreciate. So thank you, James. Uh, clues there for everybody. I have made mistakes before. Uh, I have got a lot of emails where someone said, uh, please don't mention my name. I'm like, oh man, it's too late now. So yes, please say at the top. Uh, hi, Scott and Ram. I've been an avid listener since around 2019. I saw you in the flesh at FinFest. 2022 and i am a happy member of share advisor thank you mate i appreciate your insightful discussions on both the friday and the sunday episodes and i've learned a wealth of financial business and economic knowledge along the way which i couldn't put a price on i'm going to assume james that means it's invaluable rather than not worth anything but no, you can make your own conclusions on that one i'm not sure what he's saying there's been a huge growth in the etf market he says over the last 10 to 15 years and it's forecast to have a compound annual growth rate of 14.6 percent between june 2021 and June 2026. According to a PwC report, this poses two questions to my mind. Can I say, I'm old enough to remember when Price, uh, PwC was actually PricewaterhouseCoopers, and even older than that, I remember when Pricewaterhouse and Coopers and the Librand were different oh, yeah. businesses. Which oh, is, that's right, yeah. Which is, which is to say nothing other than I'm old, and you're not, and I hate that. <laughs> All right, when browsing most companies' financials, he says, you will find that Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, and various other ETF providers are shown owning 5 to 10% of most businesses across the ASX and presumably other global markets. With the forecast growth in the ETF market, is it safe to assume these percentage ownerships within companies will only get higher naturally as their assets under management rise? The answer is a very clear yes. Yep. This poses the question though regarding the governance of those ETF providers who essentially have minor to major shareholdings in most established businesses across the globe, especially in indices such as the ASX 200 and S&P 500. So here's the question. Is there potential risk that these companies may become too powerful for their own good? What stops them from exerting their voting powers across global markets for their own benefit? Hmm. Ram. So it's definitely a possibility. That can definitely happen. Um, uh, it, uh, I mean, we've already seen the, this trend play out. So they are becoming more and more significant holders. More money is gaining exposure to these assets via this ETF vehicle. And I don't know if PwC, I mean, you know, it's a forecast from PwC. I'm not going to badmouth those guys, but as they say, forecasting is the art of explaining what will happen and then explaining why it didn't happen. So <laughs> yes. you know, it might it might not happen. Uh, they usually don't vote on things. I mean, they usually don't exert that, that um, voting rights. Um, I think there are ex- exemptions to that, like a, a lot of the ESG kind of push, I think, has come from a lot of these big holders in certain situations. Um, but I actually don't really have a good answer for this, mate. What, are, what do you think? So I, 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 you know what's funny? I thought the question was going to be different. <laughs> so um, are they are they, they going to become too powerful for their own good or what stops them exerting their voting powers across the global markets for their own benefit? I think the last thing is, there, I don't think there is a benefit if you're an ETF owner. You get what the market gets. The, 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 their own benefit is inextricably linked with their shareholder's benefit, which makes them like every other shareholder ever. Mm. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's kind of no, there's no, there's no reason why, there's no, there's no additional benefit for an ETF provider to get out of this. So, you know, they, they pass everything through to the people who own the ETFs, which are you and me. So are we saying, will shareholders maybe vote in their own interests 
yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, mm. is, is that is that bad? Well, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see any scenario under which the ETF owners the, or the ETF managers themselves somehow do something that changes the story or changes the game. Where it where it does potentially impact it, I mean, I'm not just trying spitballing here, but is they as self-described and mandated passive investors maybe there is actually and as they creep up the register and become more and more dominant shareholders maybe there is less capacity for what they call shareholder activism that is shareholders agitating against the board and that to say no 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 we want to take this in a in a different direction um which you can actually see some really positive outcomes. Sometimes the just fact of the matter is you do get some toxic mm. boards and management teams that don't do well, mm. and yet underneath it all, there's actually a really, really great business. And you've had some some activist investors who come on, they they climb up the register, they have a, a reasonable amount of voting power, and they vote for change again. In the, mm. to your point, to, in their own interests, uh, to sort of turn that around and make sure the the, the ship is being steered by more capable hands. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, um, so so I, where. <laughs> I, so I guess I'm just highlighting the potential for there to be yep. less less of that. I guess that's fair. I I uh, yeah. I, I think it's it, there's there's a there's a materiality issue. I think at some point in my mind, mate, which is which is that idea of you know it's like people say, oh, markets need to be more liquid because they're more efficient. If there's more shares trying to be more efficient, mm-hmm. and I'm like, well, there's probably a hundred times as many trades placed today as there were forty years ago. And I'm not entirely sure there's a lot wrong there. So you know, is it is it is it true in a relative sense? I guess, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it is it true enough to be material to anything meaningful? Yeah. I don't think so. I, no, I don't, think, I don't think. No, I'm with you there. I'm just I was trying to sort of think through one p- potential angle, yeah. but it's certainly nothing that's going to keep me up at night. Uh, second question from uh, from James, who said he, I can mention his name. Uh, another question is the current and future effects on markets that ETFs may cause when rebalancing their holdings. ETFs are typically rebalanced at different frequencies, quarterly, monthly, half yearly, yearly, where holdings are dropped and added for various reasons, and they differ between active and passive. If these ETF providers currently have holdings of 5 to 10% ownership of a company, and potentially more in the future, and a company is dumped off an index or a portfolio manager changes his or her thesis on that company, come rebalancing time, why wouldn't this, or sorry, wouldn't this gravely impact the price of an individual business, and in some cases, even cause liquidity issues on the smaller end of town? Hmm. Thanks again for your time and efforts and full on, James. Uh, what do you reckon, mate? Yeah, well, it can. And I've seen it. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen a lot. Um, it tends to be front run a little bit because the... That's right. You, you know the, the methodologies that the indexes are employing, right? Mm. And you know that the frequency with which they're rebalanced. So if a company that was in the index has dropped 80%, and therefore yeah. its market cap has fallen and something else has grown massively, you don't have to be a genius to work out that that's probably <laughs> going to be included in the index. And yeah. so it doesn't happen all at once. It's like they announce it and everyone goes, oh, what's it going to be? Like you kind of know and that sort of, mm. it smooths it out. But yeah, you, st- you definitely see it. Uh, you know, but they're not huge moves, but you, you certainly see what feels like uh, an impact of, of that on those, on those um, rebalancing mm. dates. Mm. In terms, and so liquidity is the right thing to think of here because generally for something like a Commonwealth Bank or a Woolies or a BHP, there's so much traded each day that that alone is probably not going to be enough to, to do much. For a small cap, one of my shares, this will make me sound smart, but don't, don't make that mistake. One of my shares was up <laughs> 20% yesterday. Right. Right? Now, what happened? $1,500 worth of shares spread, a- <laughs> spread across three separate orders were traded. Right. And right. the spread between the bid and the offer was, was <laughs> you know, it was, I think it was 10 cents at the bottom and 12 cents at the top. So it made, wow, I'm 20% richer. I'm like, well, not really. It's just that the, the buyer crossed the chasm to, to meet the seller as opposed to the other way around. Nothing uh, changed right, whatsoever. Right, right. So if you're an index and you know, you're a Vanguard and you, want, you, know, mm. you decide that you want to uh, wait 5% of it, it's, it just can't be done. But, but that doesn't really tend to happen for mm. those companies because it's not just market cap that is part of the consideration in the formula and the methodology, it's also liquidity. A great example of this, and, and you'll know this one, Scott, is that Sol Pat's a huge company. I don't know how many billion dollar market cap it is, but it's not. It's actually out of a couple of indices that it would otherwise be in. Maybe this has changed because I haven't followed it closely, but I remember back in the day, it was noticeably absent from a few yep. indices. And you think, well, it's a... It's a massive company. How is that included? It's not included because of the liquidity. 
Um, you may see this, too, in fact, you will see this too, not to, not to get too far off topic, but with margin loans. So, mm. you know, they, they'll, the margin lender will yeah, lend different true. percent against each companies. And some of them you kind of think, well, that's a huge company. Why, are you, why can I only borrow 40% against this one? The answer is liquidity because they want to be able to know that if, if things turn and you can't meet your obligations, they can sell your stock nice and quickly without having to suffer a, suffer a big loss. So, yes. Uh, yeah, does that answer the question? Um, yes, I think it does. Uh, I think it does. I, uh, by the way, Solpat's in all, all, almost all the indices now, uh, but it wasn't, and you're right, and Berkshire Hathaway for years wasn't either, despite being massive because of liquidity. So, right, same thing. Right, um, uh, Look, could, could it have an impact on the price? I, I can't... <laughs> I'll say, James. Uh, my first answer is going to be a bit flippant. Is I don't care, and I don't mean that. I don't mean that to be to be harsh. I, I mean over time, you know, the, the small movements as companies come in and out of the index are irrelevant uh, to their overall value. And so, honestly, if they do move, maybe there's a chance to buy or sell. For us as, as individuals, take advantage of that dislocation if it happens. If you think it's that big, uh, broadly speaking. Um, Woolies is going to be, you know, go from X to Y over ten years. If it goes in and out of the index in the meantime, it's just, it's not going to matter. Uh, now, yeah, very, very, very small into town does matter. Coverage does matter, and, and you know, there's less efficient pricing because fewer people, like Andrew's point about the fifteen hundred dollar worth of trades, you know, that that will be mispriced a lot of the time because there's not enough liquidity there to really be as efficient as it could be. So there's opportunities there, and maybe that does dislocate for longer. But almost to your point, mate, the idea of liquidity is they won't be in or out of the indices unless they have enough liquidity to get in there in the first place. So it's just, it's just less likely. It's, po- it's absolutely possible. Um, some people try and, as you say, front run. Occasionally you get like 1% or 2% jumps or falls on a given day. If that was 5% or 10%, like it's just not that big a deal. And I know that sounds, again, it sounds flippant and, and almost neglectful, but it just doesn't matter because over time, if it's still worth buying and it's 10% cheaper, but you like the company every bit as much, great. If it's 10% more expensive and you didn't like it anyway, well, great, sell it. Um, you know, there's, there's just, there's no, and those things, the other thing is, by the way, we kind of think that somehow that's going to be permanently changed to the price. Once once the ETF providers have had their fill or have sold their shares, the next day, the company's going to be traded based on what buyers and sellers think it's worth. You know, once any, once any kind of over um, overhang of volume in either direction is gone, then it goes back to, well, who's buying and who's selling today? What do they think it's worth? That, that's, that's all the share price ever is. Once it's owned by the fund or not owned by the fund, they, their buying doesn't make any difference. It just simply is worth what it's worth. So um, I really, really wouldn't worry about it. I don't think it's, I think it's likely to be an issue. Mm-hmm. All right, mate, let's finish off with one last question. Lucky last from Sam, who's got a, a simple, but also a really interesting question. He says, hi, thanks for the podcast, which I greatly enjoy. Thanks, Sam. I'd be interested to hear your views on conglomerates like Seven Group Holdings and West Farmers. Is the internal diversification generally a good thing? I know you like Washington H. Sol Pattinson, but I recall Scott not liking West Farmers. Thanks, Sam. Uh, I will quickly just say, I'll ask you the question first, because I answered the last one first, but um, I don't dislike West Farmers because it's a conglomerate. I don't think it's particularly attractively valued right now. So very different things. Uh, so just, just to be clear about it, so not every conglomerate's always going to be well-priced, of course, like any company. Um, so I, I, have no, I have no structural issue with West Farmers in and of itself. Uh, I, I don't love it at the current price. So that, that's, that's slightly different. Ram, is internal diversification generally a good thing? Are conglomerates generally a good thing? My usual answer, it depends. Um, (laughs) Pros and cons. On on the cons, um, while you are more diversified, it means that you you get less benefit from those segments that happen to do really, really well, you know? So when something's firing, perhaps something isn't going so well, it smooths out, and probably it's an okay return overall if they they know what they're doing. But it's just something to bear in mind. and, And maybe it's a bit of a management distraction as well. There's just too many things to keep an eye on. Uh, I don't think that's always true, by the way, but I, I, put, I put it out there. The great advantage, and this is the core of, well, not the core, but one of the foundational aspects of Berkshire's success, Solpat's success, is that you can take the cash flow from one area and reinvest it in another area. So all of the companies under your umbrella now have a different pool of funding that isn't available to companies that, that don't have this conglomerate structure. I have to raise money from the, uh, go to the bank or raise it from shareholders or generate the cash myself if I want to fund any, any growth aspirations. What I can do as a conglomerate, and I might have a more mature, wonderful business over here, just gushes off cash flow. And as attractive as that business is, it maybe is not a lot of growth potential. It's just a very mature business, a great business, but a mature business. Um, so normally in that situation, if that was a standalone, the company would probably pay dividends and 
and away you go. As a conglomerate, I can take that cash flow and I can say, ah, over here there's an area where I can invest it. So the person running that smaller business with better growth aspirations or segment within the conglomerate has an access to funding and capital that's not not available to other companies. And when that's done well, it can be a thing of beauty. And and that is when you you, you often... It, it seems strange that when you look at Berkshire that this multinational mm. conglomerate that's just as bigger than Ben-Hur is run out of this tiny, tiny office in Omaha. And I think the staff count for the corporate HQ is 30 or something like that, isn't I, it? It used to be much less, actually, Matt. So it, it may be 30, but it was famously a dozen or 13 for a long time. Uh, right. It may be now because the business is bigger. It might be. I don't. I would be surprised if it's over 20, but it might. It may be somewhere that number. Let's call it. Thir- let's let's be generous. Let's, let's call, call it 50. It's a tiny operation. How yeah. does that few people honestly keep track of all of these businesses? And 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 the answer is they don't. Because, and Buffett talks about this all the time, what he's looking for are great businesses, but he's also looking for great people to run that, that he can just trust. The only phone call he needs to hear is, you know, beyond the periodic updates on the business, if you need cash, come and make the case. I, my, only, my only decision, aside, aside from the big sort of acquisitions and purchases that we we're initially making, is to allocate the capital that my stable of companies is generating. And all of my managers make the pitch to me, and then I put it where I, I give those who are most deserving of it. That, that's mm. really it. Other than that, yep. you do yep. the day-to-day. I don't care about this or that. That's what you're paid for. And, mm. and stepping back from that micromanaging and focusing on and just building the trust in people and seeing the competence in people has been a massive edge for Buffett because he, does, mm. then he, he, he can outsource all of that stuff. So in theory, I love the conglomerate model. Um, Constellation software is something not many Australians will be familiar with, um, but I'd Google that too. It's a wonderful um, case study in business, but same same kind of idea. Where it gets bad is when you have, I don't want to name names, but you have things that are more about the ego of the founder yeah, and it's, right. em- it's empire building, right? And that's right, that's right. You can, you can probably guess a few, but I'm not, I'm not silly enough to put Thank names you. out there. And- <laughs> Appreciate that. Saves me having to time in court. Um, yes. I, I completely agree. I, you know what? You know what? Here's the increasing... There's a lot of stuff that best practice... So I, I, I generally am in favour of good regulation. I'm generally in favour of good guidelines. I'm generally in favour of independent uh, bodies coming up with the best way these things are done because they don't have those, those issues, right? And I think your, your example of conglomerates is a great example. There used to be... There were millions of conglomerates in the 70s and 80s. Um, Heinz... Well, I used to work for Heinz. At one point, they owned Stanley Wines in Australia, right? Just because they did. Because someone decided it was going to buy a wine business, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what Heinz is doing running a wine business is beyond me. They sold it off eventually. I don't know the prices in between. I don't know if they made me or lost money. It's just like at some point, conglomerate for the sake of conglomerate is, is a bit useless. And so yeah. I kind of, you know, as a general rule, I prefer simpler businesses. But mm. if Warren wants to run, or, or Robert Milner at Solpats want to run, I own both those shares, I think we've said, um, great. Like, you know, I, I trust the Milners to do the best job running the conglomerate of Solpats. That, that to me is great. If it was a professional manager, a professional empire builder who came in after the Millers side, okay, we're done. We're going to hire, you know, uh, John Smith to come in, Jane Smith to come in. Uh, she's going to run the business and, uh, you know, build this conglomerate thing. And we were like, you know what? I'm not sure that's great. So it kind of, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's always one of those things where the rules are useful. If, if I had to, if I didn't know the people, I'd absolutely follow the rule. You know, if I didn't know the people running this, I would say don't own any conglomerates. Because the chance that it's diversification, to use Peter Lynch's term, uh, diversification is great. Except if you're, you know, buy, when Heinz buys a, a wine business, or when you know, again, pick your choose your choose your option. Um, at one point, Jerry Harvey had bought a um, a, a cattle business for for Harvey Norman. Oh, um, that's right. You know, like I, I, oh, the I, other I, one, the other one was Flight Center. Got into ninety nine bikes. Oh, bikes. That's right. Yes, yeah. Which I, I think like, the founder's I, son was the. Um, founder Correct. of so. and look and the things yeah. that might be a great business right this is what I'm saying about individuals like Jerry got that wrong uh, the Millers have got stuff right it's all Pats uh, Warren's got some good and bad businesses at Berkshire over his time you know but over time if you it comes down to people you know you know if, if I had to say you know blanket rule yes or no I'd say no conglomerates mm-hmm. and over over time most conglomerates have been disbanded for exactly that reason they've been done badly 
Yeah. But when you've got someone running the shop who you know and trust, or we don't, we don't know Warren Buffett, we don't know the Willis that well, but you know, we, we, we trust them, we understand what they're doing, we understand why. I'm very happy to have those. I actually like West Farmers. I think, I think West Farmers is a great conglomerate. Um, everything is for sale at West Farmers all the time. They, they will yeah. take any price for any asset. And they've, they're a really no-nonsense, um, I think from memory on their, on their, um, on their website, they, 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 they say their aim is to deliver satisfactory returns. You know, in, a world of, in a world of over-promising and fancy PowerPoint slides, when, when you aim <laughs> to deliver satisfactory returns, I think that's great, right? It's just saying, yeah. you know, this is what we're here for. We're, a, we're an investment company first and foremost. Not even an operating conglomerate like a, you know, if Woolies decided to go, well, let's go back to Heinz, or Heinz is a, a food business. When it buys Stanley Wines, arguably kind of food-related, but yeah. it's, 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 an, it's an operating business, right? It's, it's a food business first and foremost, buying other businesses. If Woolies was to, when Woolies wanted to go into Masters, it was a retailing business. Woolies is never going to you know, sell itself. Woolies is never going to sell its own business because it is Woolworths. That's what it does. West Farmers isn't anything. West Farmers is a conglomerate uh, structure. That, that it's, its only job is to buy businesses when they're cheap and sell them when they're expensive and run yeah. them well in the meantime. So yeah. I, I really like West Farmers as a business. I like the people. I don't love the price. So I don't buy the shares, but I don't dislike it at all. But I do think conglomerates should be used very sparingly and only by people whose reputation and or businesses whose culture justifies that and can justify your faith. Otherwise, I think there's just too much potential for, for risk going on. Yeah, well said. I reckon we're done, mate. I think You've so. You've got through this beautifully between uh, Friday's episode where you had people giving you grief. We did have a small break. And if, uh, frankly, if you still hear that break, Link's forgotten to edit it out or I've forgotten to tell him. But if the break isn't there, if it sounds perfect, then that's because uh, Link is on fire and we managed to. I, I hope he break. does edit it out because I might have uttered a curse word or two as I put the <laughs> okay, microphone I will double down. Check. So I will please double make check sure that was sure. edited out. Yeah. <laughs> I will. Oh, dear. Don't worry. All right. I think we are done here. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, you know what to do. Info at fool.com.au is the email address, particularly with long questions, but follow us on the socials as well. Andrew is on Twitter exclusively at Sage underscore Simeon and at Strawman Invest. Get me on Twitter or Insta at TMF Scott P or The Motley Fool at The Motley Fool AU or follow me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scott Phillips Money. Until next week when hopefully Andrew will not have any construction related <laughs> issues, his rental tenancy life will be fixed once and for all. It'll be beautiful and glorious from this point forward. Is that, is that what we're going for, Ram? Can I just say very quickly, because I know we're at the end of the episode. So the, <laughs> I just I just had a poke of poke poke in the room. Oh, it dear. looks fantastic. It looks great. They've taken oh, nice. the head. So this, if you were following the story, I put some pictures on Twitter, and the the landlords like slopped down this contact, and it was just like lumpy, and it was just it was just like crazy. So we sort of said, "Can you fix it?" Meaning. Just make it flat. I don't don't have any anything. So so what what's happened? I don't know if this is I don't know how it's happened, but they've taken that up. <laughs> they've spent all day polishing it down, sanding it. Down. It looks beautiful, and I'm I'm I will. I'll, that's really great. I'm really happy about that. But it, <laughs> it just it, it, and I'm yeah. I just like well. You didn't have to do that much, but but thank you. It's it, hey, there you go. I told you yeah. things looking up, mate. I told I, you things I, looking I, up. I, you got to be careful to to not get too cynical and call out the wins when they happen. So I was like, yeah, if the landlord's listening, thanks. I mean, you didn't have to, but but thanks. <laughs> there you go. I like that happy news. On that happy note, enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and until next week, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under Financial Services Licence 400691.